Thank you. The hand of God was on me, that is for sure. Well, we finally get to meet Ezra in chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So there's only 10 chapters, so I'm glad he finally showed up here. Uh, At the end of chapter 6, the temple was finally completed and dedicated, and the people were celebrating the Jewish holidays, um, including Passover. And everything was going very well with the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem. Chapter 7 begins 57 years later. So, as you can probably guess, things were not as awesome as they once were. A lot can happen in 57 years. Uh, The Jews were in need of a fresh outpouring of grace and a new spiritual awakening. They were in need of revival, as Angela would say. Enter Ezra. I really had no idea who Ezra was before I started to study for this talk. For most Christians, he's not even included among the greatest people of the Old Testament. But it turns out that he's kind of a big deal, especially to followers of the Jewish faith to this day. For Jews, he's considered second only to King David. And he's on equal footing with Moses. Ezra is known as a courageous leader, protector of the sacred scriptures, and author of many books. He's admired for his unwavering and passionate commitment to God and his word. In the first verses of this chapter, we get a shortened version of Ezra's genealogy. This is important because it demonstrates that Ezra was a member of the holy priesthood descended from Aaron, so that he had the authority to introduce the reforms that he was going to introduce. As Nancy said uh, a few weeks back, the Jews in exile were well-educated, prosperous, and some of them were even trusted advisors to the Babylonian kings. Uh, The Babylonian kings took a hands-off approach to the Jewish exiles. They were able to live together in community, um, but there was always the threat that they would lose their identity with all the other exiles and the whole Babylonian culture the Jews could have easily disappeared as um, a people like so many of the other exiled peoples actually did. The one thing that set them apart was the word of God contained in the holy books of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the Tanka, which is the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, The Jews knew that the prophets, uh, from the prophets, that God had promised a return to Jerusalem. But they also knew that they needed to turn back to God, the God of Abraham, and remember the covenant promises and cling to them. And that's exactly what Ezra did. His parents were taken captive, and Ezra was born in exile. As a member of the priestly family, he studied the law. His great-grandfather was the high priest when Josiah was the king of Judah, and I'm pretty sure he was the last king of Judah um, before the exile. His teacher was, um, Ezra's teacher was the assistant to the prophet Jeremiah. Ezra had both passion and knowledge, and he gained spiritual strength through prayer and fasting. God's hand was definitely upon him. As a priest and scholar and leader, he knew what was at stake, the very survival of the Jewish faith. And their survival would be impossible without revival. He knew that the people needed revival both in Babylon and in Israel and that they needed to honor the God of their fathers. Ezra knew there was nothing more important than reviving a love for God and his word. To this end, Ezra accomplished the following. 
He founded yeshivas, which were academies for studying God's words. He devised the concept of synagogues for worship and teaching that you know, that was in Christ's day and survives to this day. He created the square letters of the Hebrew script that are still in use. He put all the books of the Hebrew Bible together, creating the final version of the Torah. He established an annual reading schedule for the synagogues for the Torah, and that survives to this day. He established the great assembly of 120 elders that eventually became the Sanhedrin, um, which was in the time of Jesus. He removed, this is I think the most important one, he removed scripture from the monopoly of the priesthood and placed it in the hands and the hearts of the people. And in this way, he reminds us of Jesus and Martin Luther. Uh, so these are just his accomplishments before he led the group of Israel's uh, exiles to Jerusalem um, and to continue to rebuild the temple. He was not only beloved in the eyes of his fellow exiles, but he was also highly favored by King Artaxerxes. Uh, the king offered Ezra a, a life of ease and wealth if he stayed in Babylon, but Ezra was determined to return to Jerusalem. The king not only granted him permission to go, but also appointed him to establish a civil legal system in Jerusalem. Also, anyone who wished to go with him, including priests and Levites, um, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, they were all permitted to travel with Ezra to Jerusalem um, in service of the temple. Lots of silver and gold, some given by the king, some by the people, and the province of Babylon were taken on the long, difficult journey through the desert. The king also instructed the treasurers of the nearby promises, uh, um, sorry, provinces to give Ezra whatever he asked for up to a certain limit, except for salt. You could take as much salt as you want. <laughs> uh, the king commanded Ezra to set up a system of judges and magistrates in all the regions across the Euphrates River according to the laws of the God of Israel. Finally, no taxes were to be paid by anyone serving at the temple in Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes' letter, which takes up the bulk of chapter 7, is written in Aramaic while the beginning and end of the chapter, uh, some, some of it in first person from uh, Ezra, they're written in Hebrew. The letter basically gives Ezra everything he could possibly ask of the king. It's almost like the king is asking Ezra now, is there anything I forgot to add, anything else you want to put in here? How is that possible? How is that possible that Ezra, as an exile, enjoyed so much favor? At this time, there were numerous different ethnic groups um, with numerous different gods that were taken into exile, and all of them would have been petitioning the king for all kinds of favors. But Ezra prevailed because he studied the word of God. He knew it inside and out. He knew the story of Joseph and his relationship with Pharaoh. Like Joseph, he was smart and talented. He was actively seeking the kingdom of God through diplomatic channels that were open to him as an official in the Persian court. Ezra also knew the story of Daniel, and he would have been almost a contemporary of Esther and Mordecai. He knew how to influence the king with the truth of his mighty God. The fact that his requests were granted is a direct result of God's blessing. Was the king a believer in the God of Israel? Probably not. After all, he starts his letter calling himself Artaxerxes, King of Kings. 
Uh, we do get a clue as to his motivation in verse 23. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be any wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? As somebody pointed out in our group, what about his daughters? I don't know. <laughs> um, he knew that the God of Israel was a mighty God, capable of destroying his kingdom and his family. Indeed, the hand of the Lord was on Ezra, who, with the guidance of his God, put into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of Jerusalem, the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. In verse 10, we can see why the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. He devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This short verse packs a powerful punch. Some commentators call this the Ezra principle, which boils down to study, obey, teach. Ezra submitted to God with his mind, heart, and strength. Ezra makes at least six commitments in that verse. One, he sets his heart. Two, to the energy he needs to study. Three, to focus his energies to study only God's word. Four, to practice God's word. And five, to equip himself to teach God's word. He learned the scriptures, and then only after his own obedience and submission, he taught others. He touched people's hearts, and they were in turn humbled. He taught in Babylon and in Israel through the, the yeshivas and synagogues he created. If we compare Ezra to the chief priests and elders in Jesus' day, we can see a stark contrast. In Matthew 23, Jesus tells the crowd, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for the people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. And they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. For the Pharisees, it was do as I say, not as I do. And hypocrisy is deadly to the kingdom of God. And this is as true today as it was back then. Seekers and unbelievers not only see right through the hypocrisy, but they seize upon it to invalidate the whole of Christian faith. Of course, there will be times when we stray from the word of God and the commands of God, but we must immediately seek forgiveness and be humbled by confessing our sins. We must be like Ezra. The Ezra principle is not only for Ezra, but for all of us. We can't be teachers of his word until we are doers of his word. And we can't be obedient to God's word unless we study it. Each of us, like Ezra, must set our hearts on studying the Bible and then transforming our lives by practicing God's word with humble submission. We are then commanded to share not only what we've learned, but also our personal experiences and our own struggles that are really the best illustrations to others who are thirsty for the word. None of this can happen without the power of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out into each of us. And that is, it's poured out lavishly, and that is really the hand of God. So what is, what is the law that we're supposed to be studying? 
the Torah that Ezra devoted himself to contains chapter upon chapter of intricate legal commands and restrictions that don't appear to relate to my life. My eyes glaze over when I try to read them. But the Ten Commandments are found in the Torah, and they are the law that was given to Moses directly by God. And we are bound by them. And I know that I am constantly falling short, like everyone else. As Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. Well, I knew that I felt short, fell short of the law uh, from the tender age of five. I know I've told this story before, but maybe some of you haven't heard it, or maybe you forgot it, or maybe you just roll your eyes and think, oh my gosh, not again. <laughs> Honestly, you start to run out of stories the more you share. So, unless I gotta have more experiences, that's all I can find. So, when I was five, I attended Catholic kindergarten in the city, and I had this ancient nun who was my teacher. And she told us one day that if you have a bad thought, you are sinning. And if you sin, you will go to hell. Well, I was probably the only one listening. <laughs> but it, it cut to be deep. And my parents told me, I don't remember this story. My parents told me this years later. Uh, they told me that I cried for the entire night, every night for a week, that I was going to hell. And they were like, why are you going to hell? And I said, because I had a bad thought. <laughs> And they're like, what bad thought did you have? I, and I said, I thought that I wanted to hit my sister. <laughs> it was probably some other bad thought, but I used that as a bad thought. <laughs> so um, the only way I was cured of this, my mother yelled up the steps one night. They comforted me every night trying to get me to sleep. And then one night she yelled up at me, if you don't shut up, you're going to hell and I'm sending you there. <laughs> And she never heard another word out of me. So let's just say I stuffed that pretty deep. But, uh, but I just had the bad news. I did not have the good news. Um, I, and I knew that Jesus died for my sins, but I just felt bad about that too. Uh, thankfully, I had a teacher like Ezra, Barbara, and um, she taught me out of love and humility. So she sent me to Bible study, basically, to, to learn the good news. And that's where I learned the good news. Um, uh, Paul explains in Galatians 3, 24 to 26, that the law was like those Greek tutors. This is from the message, so it's not exactly what it says in the NIV, but I think this is so good. Um, the law was like those Greek tutors of which you are familiar, which you're not, but I'll explain it to you, uh, who escort the children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. Uh, but now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. So the law was always just supposed to lead us to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus asked in Luke... Um, Jesus, I'm sorry, when Jesus was asked in Luke 17, who can be saved? Luke 18, I'm sorry. He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that's what the law is there for, to lead us to Jesus. Um, what we need to be studying and practicing and teaching is the love of Jesus. Remember that in Matthew 22, 
37 to 40, Jesus summed up all the law in response to what was supposed to be a trick question from the Pharisees. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We are to be studying the words of Jesus and his disciples in the Bible and practicing the love of Jesus that is only made possible in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are to share that love of Jesus by teaching others about him. So who are we supposed to be teaching? Well, right here, right now, we're teaching each other. And we also know that we're to teach our children and grandchildren. But there are plenty of other opportunities if we'll only open our eyes and have courage, like Ezra had courage. As Ezra says in verse 28, Because the hand of God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He doesn't take any credit for himself. He just praises and thanks God for all the good favor that God has bestowed on him. The same hand of God is on us. God is waiting to bless us as he blessed Ezra. God's blessing is the only blessing that really counts. And it may not look like blessing uh, as this world would define blessing. He's waiting to give us everything we need um, to help him build his temple, which is his church. As, um, as Michelle said, we are the living stones. And he, he's building his church just like he built the temple uh, through the king with Ezra. After Ezra finally reached Jerusalem, he continued with the rebuilding of the temple and with the wall of protection around Jerusalem in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. He established a civil legal system, and he wrote parts of the books of Jeremiah, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, all of Ezra, and parts of Nehemiah. But perhaps his greatest achievement was Psalm 119, uh, which many biblical scholars attribute to him. It is the longest uh, of the Psalms, uh, with 176 fervent verses, and it's a beautiful love letter to the law. Each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet begins a section of eight verses. And in each of these verses, uh, each of these verses in each section uses one of eight synonyms that are used to describe the law. So each verse of the 176 contains one of these synonyms, which are uh, the law or Torah, testimonies, promises, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, and the word. And I noticed that one of the questions we had on our lesson was all these word, you know, words that are were in uh, chapter seven too, which he wrote. So when I read over this psalm, uh, stunning for the talk, I realized that you could substitute the words "your son Jesus" for each of those eight words in most of those ver- verses, and then it becomes a love letter to Jesus. Uh, for instance, verse twenty reads, "My soul is consumed with a longing for your laws at all times." Replacing the word laws, you can say that our souls are consumed with longing for your son Jesus at all times. And you can do this with practically any verse in the psalm. It's a great psalm to meditate on before you pray. Also, when Jesus said in John 19, I am the way, the truth, and the life, all the people that were there listening to him 
could not have failed to recognize that Jesus was referring directly to the familiar words of Psalm 119 um, that they studied. They would have memorized this psalm. And he was declaring himself to be the living Torah or the law. The word way is used in this psalm nine times. The word truth is used seven times. And the word life is used 12 times. And of course he's saying I am, which is Yahweh. Um, so basically God. So, so they recognized exactly what he was saying, that he was replacing the law, himself with the law, or replacing the law with himself, I meant. So how blessed are we to have Jesus? How blessed are we to have the way, the truth, and the life to cling to in our hearts? Uh, we can praise God and give him thanks like Ezra, because the hand of the Lord, our God, is on us. And we can take courage as we set out to fulfill his will uh, by loving God and our neighbor and by teaching others and sharing the wonderful gift that is Jesus. Amen.